This is David Saslov with Voices and Views on KGPR FM 89.9, Great Falls Public Radio. And today I'm here with local historian Ken Robison. Ken is a chronicler of neglected Western history, a preservationist, and the historian at the Overholzer Historical Research Center in Fort Benton. Ken is a trustee on the board of the Montana Historical Society and has been honored as a Montana Heritage Keeper by the Society. He received the Alma Smith Jacobs Award in 2022 from the Montana Library Association for his work on African American history. Captain Ken Robison served 29 years in naval intelligence throughout the Cold War, and he's author or co-author of 16 books, including Historic Tales of Fort Benton and Cold War Montana, From Stolen Secrets to the Ace in the Hole. Forthcoming books are Lost Great Falls and Hidden Great Falls Stories coming out in 2025. And Ken, let me just say what a pleasure it is to have you here. I, I've always considered you my kind of why guy for figuring out why things are the way they are today. It's great to be with you, David. And I want to just start off the, the program with a, one of my favorite quotes of George Santayana, which reads, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And this has always been one of my driving, uh, driving motivations to learn more and more about the past. Do you, uh, do you agree with that sentiment, Ken? Oh, I sure do. And don't we repeat a lot of mistakes because we don't learn from history. Yeah, I think, um, I think you and I first met back in 2018 when I first moved here at one of your book signings, I think. And uh, I think we just listed two of those books. You want to give us sort of the broader overview of what you've published and on what topics? Oh, it's been a wide range, but uh, when I when I transitioned from my Navy career to to uh, civilian life back in Montana, moved back here full time in two thousand one, I was able to get involved in many activities in both Fort Benton and Great Falls, and living here in Great Falls partly because they were then the Dodger f- rookie team. <laughs> I've been a lifelong Dodger fan. Um, I uh, I began r- looking closely at what had been neglected in Montana history, and I I'd followed even though it was from a a long distance, a lot of time in the Western Pacific and places around the world with my Navy career. I'd followed Montana closely, and of course before I'd gone into the Navy, I'd graduated from the University of Montana with my focus on uh, history there. So I, you know, I knew Montana history, but what I really wanted to determine was, uh, I, I knew that subjects like the Copper Kings from Butte and uh, Charlie Russell, our incredible artist here in Great Falls, those stories have been covered and recovered, and frankly, they're still coming up, coming up with new things about Charlie, which is great. But, but I didn't want to recover the same ground and, you know, research and write about well-known subjects. What had been neglected? Well, this was 2001, and frankly, at that point, women's history had been really neglected in Montana history. And, and frankly, in the past two decades since then, a lot of ground's been made up on that front. The Clearly, though, ethnic history had so, was somewhere between 
in the shadows and being totally left out of Montana history, black history in particular, uh, had been left out. And, you know, I'd talk to people and they'd say, well, there were so few in Montana. That didn't satisfy me. So I began researching both uh, Fort Benton and uh, Great Falls black history. And uh, there was a rich lot to be learned from both. And uh, in in doing that, uh, a whole set of uh, subsequent events began falling into place. Uh, for instance, uh, as I'd run across a story, um, a, a great example was the Ozark Club story. Here was this jazz little, little uh, second floor building in on the lower south side, which uh, was, you know, that's where the uh, ethnic part of Great Falls lived. Uh, blacks had been restricted to the lower south side until the 1960s and 70s. So for the first uh, 90 years or so of Great Falls history, um, if you were black, you lived on the lower south side. And, and, and there were some amazing stories that came out of, of that ethnic heritage there and that Ozark Club story with with Leo Lamar um, ironically um, at the same time as blacks had endured a subsequent amount a serious amount of uh, discrimination during that period until the 60s, 70s and more recently um, the Chinese have been totally excluded well the contrast of course was that Fort Benton had vibrant black and Chinese communities in a much smaller town than Great Falls. But and, uh, well it was through the 1800s into the early 1900s, uh, both Chinese and African-American uh, stories were there. <clears throat> in Great Falls, the only real Chinese story was the exclusion, total exclusion. I think the uh, Chinese were actually forced to live underneath the the city of Haver while they were building the High Line. Is that correct? Well, yeah, they had they had different stories in each place, uh, uh, and and remarkably, if you go back way back into our early mining years of like 1870, they were 10 percent of Montana's population, which is remarkable. But this is uh, that's the way it was in Great Falls, but. There were uh, several hundred black residents and on that lower south side and that Ozark Club that was led by this this guy that had <coughs> come from Chicago by way of, of uh, Minneapolis in 1920 um, on the Great Northern Railroad and he got off in Great Falls and began making his mark first as Kid Leo the toughest 120-pound boxer in Great Falls at the time. So Kid Leo made a mark and began to uh, uh, integrate into the Great Falls community. He then, as Prohibition ended 1933, he opened the Ozark Club, and by the, it was a colored-only club at the time, but by World War II it had emerged as a as as a uh, multiracial club where uh, especially 
uh, businessmen, airmen, and so on would come because there was this incredible quality jazz being played there. And, and the main reason that happened was because Leo had been able to attract a, a remarkable uh, tenor sax player, this Bob Maybane. Bob Maybane had played before war, World War II with the last big black band to form nationally, uh, Jay McShane Band in Kansas City. And I have photos of Bob Maybane with his tenor sax playing side by side with Charlie Bird Parker with his alto sax in that Jay McShane Band before World War II. Yeah, and according to the uh, historical treatment that they've given the Ozark Club in the History Museum on 2nd, uh, that wonderful series of plaques and pictures uh, seems to indicate that at that time, Great Falls was one of the main stops for the bands that were coming from Chicago on their way through to Los Angeles. They would always stop here and deliver concerts as they would in Chicago and Los Angeles. Many of them did. It was, you know, this was the railroad era and the Great Northern came through and and it was sort of a chitlin circuit, we call it, that... Uh, Midwestern uh, Chicago and Minneapolis and Detroit uh, uh, black entertainers uh, would would stop at Great Falls, Montana because of Bob Maybane and the quality of the house band, the Ozark Boys, but also the environment that Leo was able to set where at a time when when blacks were not welcome at the nightclubs or the bars on Central Avenue, or elsewhere, frankly, around town, they were on the Lower South Side, and they certainly were at the Ozark Club. And, and World War II was the opening because black airmen started showing up at the at the base. And this was in, in the still in the years of segregated military, so they were in, in uh, black squadrons and so on. But but they needed entertainment. They couldn't, uh, you know, they couldn't get into the regular joints downtown. So... Uh, Ozark Club was the place to be. And I understand it worked both ways. If if you were a jazz aficionado and wanted to hear the action at the Ozark Club, you needed to know a black serviceman or other member of the Great Falls black community in order to get in if you yourself were not black. Well, that was it. that was true when it was a colored club in the 1930s until, until World War II. But uh, as I say, Leo took advantage of the war to... Uh, quietly but very openly uh, open that Ozark Club to an interracial audience, and and uh, whites didn't have to be invited. Uh, Leo would have an ad in the Tribune or in the Leader that would uh, say, everyone's welcome and we'll be there, and he meant it, and everyone wasn't welcome at a lot of other places. So anyway, that's that's kind of the first of of many incredible stories that I started running across. The second one was, of course, uh, one that really had, the Ozark story had been forgotten, frankly, around Great Falls, but uh, one that hadn't was, of course, Alma Smith Jacobs. Alma Jacobs, the uh, librarian, the black librarian that uh, went through Great Falls High School, went off to a, a quote, colored, college, Talladega in Alabama, and I just in recent years found out the reason she went to Talladega was because the principal of Great Falls High School, 
when Alma was about to graduate in the 1930s, um, the principal's brother had just taken over as the president of Talladega College in Alabama. What no way. What an incredible coincidence. <laughs> That's so, pretty wild. So Alma got a scholarship and went down to Talladega, graduated, but she was so promising and so great as a student that she received a Rockefeller scholarship to Columbia University. And this was in in the uh, late 30s, uh, bordering on 1940. Um, she went to uh, Columbia University and earned a master's in library science. And so uh, a couple of years later, uh, newly married to a World War II veteran, uh, um, the two, the, the Alma and her husband uh, moved back to Great Falls, Montana, her hometown. Her parents were still living here. Her mother was a powerful individual in the uh, Union Bethel AMA Church and so on. And so Alma became cataloged librarian at, at the Great Falls Public Library. And, and frankly, I believe that was probably the first professional job that opened to a black uh, man or woman in Great Falls, Montana. And she did so well and was so beloved by the, by the staff that when the librarian, the head librarian, retired in 1954, Alma was named head librarian. They were very cautious in doing it. The board named her as interim librarian because they wanted to test the waters with the community and also with the staff. Well, the staff loved her. The community had grown to be very fond of her. And so that that's a nutshell of the Alma Jacobs story. And have you ever done any research into whether or not other American cities had preceded Great Falls in taking that baby step towards uh, enabling uh, black persons in positions of power like that or positions of control over major public libraries? Or was Alma first? Alma was certainly the first in Montana, the first in the Northwest. Uh, no doubt there, there had been uh, nationally... Um, uh, a black librarian or so by then, but but as Alma began her service as head librarian, uh, she very quickly actually was named the uh, president of the Montana Library Association, then the Northwest Library Association that included Washington, Oregon, Idaho, Montana, and so on, and um, before long she had been named to the national board of the American Library Association, not only named to the board, but named to the executive committee on that board. She was the first black to be named in every one of those positions I mentioned. So, so nationally, she was the first to be on the executive uh, board at the American Library Association. So every bit as big a, a personality as her mural on the library building would imply. Absolutely, and and it's it's been it's been marvelous to to see how uh, Alma's the knowledge of Alma's accomplishments and the uh, the incredible work that she did both as a librarian, a head librarian, and a civil rights leader. Uh, she was a member of the committee in. Great Falls that worked with the base and worked with city government and uh, businesses 
to break down those racial barriers I talked about earlier. She also was named to the uh, Montana uh, part of the uh, U.S. Civil Rights Commission, and I mean, she had all sorts of uh, statewide accomplishments. And so uh, Alma's story, you know, has been, it was known, but it wasn't talked about. And now it's being talked about, even to the extent, as you mentioned, of having a mural of of Alma on the side of the Great Falls Public Library building, which frankly is the house that Alma built. She she went through three tough bond issue elections to get that built. Um, and we all know how tough library bond and levy issues can be in this well, town. Bond, bond <laughs> issues in general are, are tough. Uh, you, you really have to convince the the public of the need, and because they're voting themselves a taxing tax increase. That's right. And uh, this makes a perfect segue into into the timing of this interview, because we're just starting out Black History Month here in February 2024. And I know that you've gotten deeply involved in a number of the activities that Great Falls is putting on to commemorate Black History Month here in the city. Yes, and um, it, it was... Uh, I'd mention a third major story that emerged from my research, and that was the story of uh, Union Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Now, we talked about the ethnic Lower South Side and the the black community in the Lower South Side. Well, that little church at uh, 916 Fifth Avenue South uh, began as a wood frame building in 1890, just uh, six years after Great Falls began as a little town site in 1884, that first uh, AME church went up at that location. And by 1916, it was in bad shape. And the the congregation and uh, dynamic minister they had at the time went both to the white community and the black community, and they raised the funds to build the brick facade church that's there today. Well, uh, that church has had a tremendous history. I worked with a uh, uh, historian in in Missoula, and the two of us got the uh, Union Bethel on the National Register of Historic Places in 2003. Um, When I had moved back here, uh, Union Bethel had a very dynamic uh, missileer from Malmstrom uh, Major Bob Payne was the ordained AME minister, so he was both a missileer and a, the minister at Union Bethel. Charismatic, incredible guy. Uh, filled that little church every Sunday for the services. So, uh, and what with, years were the, what years would that be? That his time was from the about 1998 to 2004, and my years with him was those years from about 2001 to 2004. Um, it was it was a period when uh, other you know once Great Falls opened up, of course, blacks were welcome in Catholic church or Lutheran churches or Presbyterian all any church of their choice. So, you know, the the need to go to a segregated uh, church, and frankly, Union Bethel, as for many years, had an interracial congregation. It hasn't just been uh, African-American members. But 
there were other black churches in the community, like the very vibrant uh, Alexander, Alexander Temple Church of God in Christ under uh, Bishop Marcus uh, Collins, Collins right. and, uh, and and there's also uh, several other black churches. Uh, Phil Caldwell, Reverend Caldwell, had a, a a very active church on the north side, uh, Mount Olive. So um, the the community's been really fragmented with members in all churches, and then in those three uh, sort of competing actually black churches but it it's been interesting to follow union bethel over the years uh, i was able to attract uh, the the great talent of montana's finest historic architect ken sievert uh, back in about 2007 to 2010 uh, ken did a lot of work most of it pro bono for union bethel First of all, putting it, uh, having a, a detailed historic structures report put together, and then helping them, guiding them through a major uh, construction job because the tower on the front of the Union Bethel Church was about to topple. Uh, the ground was not stable underneath, and so that was uh, totally rebuilt in 2010 under uh, Ken Sievert's. Uh, architectural talent and uh, now just in the past two weeks we received news that again thanks to Ken Sievert's fine work in putting the technical input into a grant from the National Trust uh, we've received uh, uh, money to repoint the bricks the mortar was failing on the exterior bricks and so that $200,000 grant will cover most of the cost of repointing those bricks. And about uh, how long will that work take, do you know? Well, it has to be done within a year and a half, and it depends on, uh, you know, the contract will be bid, and it depends on the timing the contractor is able to uh, satisfy. But it'll be probably within about the next year that that work will be done, and and the church needs it. There's, yeah. Uh, Preferably so, to be so done the before Union the church Bethel fails. The story was yeah. uh, an exciting story, and it continues to to be exciting, as as are those of uh, uh, the churches like uh, Alexander Temple. Uh, Alexander Temple draws a a large part of their congregation from Malmstrom, and there are always uh, a substantial number of African Americans out at Malmstrom looking for involvement in the community and things like active churches. So so that brings us back to the topic of Black History Month. Absolutely. You've, you've named three, uh, three important topics that perhaps would not be as well understood about Great Falls history if you hadn't gotten involved with them and done a lot of digging and research and, and community and partnership. So what would be your advice to someone who's just moved to Great Falls, let's say in the past month or two, who wants to get involved in this month's celebration and observance of Black History Month? Well, I think I'd, I'd recommend a drive by the library to view that Alma Jacobs portrait on the side of the building. Uh, there was a, a young, uh, era, actually she was a staff sergeant at the time. She's advanced since then, but uh, Michi Augusta Rivera was uh, a live wire out at Malmstrom in their uh, diversity 
uh, council and uh, worked with the community uh, on on a whole series of projects. Uh, but Mishi uh, uh, says that when she arrived in Great Falls and was wondering why on earth God had sent her here to to Moms from Air Force Base, where wasn't a huge uh, city or wasn't a huge black community. She she drove by the library, saw that mural, parked her car, and said she'd found the answer. And um, so I I think to get involved in in black history, first I think you need to understand that when Carter G. Woodson first originated. Black History Month as the month of February, there was a desperate need for that because like I had found black history left out of Montana history, black history had been left out of American history. And so Carter Woodson's goal was one month a year, highlight and call attention to the good stories and the, and the vibrant part of uh, black history in American history. Now, fast forward a hundred years, that was about 19, in the 1920s when he did that. Fast forward for a hundred years and, and you're in an era now when black history is in in many ways, it's caught up and it's being treated as I've tried to treat in each of my books. There's a presence of black stories, black history, not an overemphasis but the best stories and the best activities and best history are highlighted. So 12 months a year, we should be thinking black history is part of American history. But we still have February is Black History Month. You can, uh, you can certainly uh, attend the annual, and it's uh, the 8th of February will be the 14th annual Black Heritage Evening that that several of us uh, uh, put together with the Great Falls Public Library to honor Albert Jacobs and to uh, commemorate uh, black culture, uh, history, and cuisine. And then there are other presentations. Uh, I'm giving one the 23rd of February at the library to talk about uh, three graduates of Great Falls High School, actually they weren't all graduates of Great Falls High School. They were all students in Great Falls High School. Uh, two of them really early back in, uh, say, the 1910 uh, to 1915 period, and the other one uh, more recently. And of course, uh, black students in both CMR and Great Falls High School are, have been routine and you know expected uh, to have achievements in uh, sports, academics, and drama, and so on for several decades now since the environment has changed. But back when th those students went through Great Falls High School, uh, they they were achieving things that very few were able to do. Not only that, but then they'd go on to uh, some very uh, impressive national achievements. And so the 23rd of February at 5 p.m. Friday the 
23rd at 5 p.m. at the Great Falls Public Library. I'm going to be talking about those three and uh, just what they did to uh, make a mark nationally after they finished at Great Falls High School. Yeah, don't give too much away here because we want people to attend that. And if um, you're not by a pad and a uh, pad of paper and a pen, just be aware that uh, if you go to uh, kgpr.org slash electron, you'll find a new lectures and talks category that I launched almost exclusively for Mr. Ro- Mr. Robison's <laughs> events. Uh, and you'll find it listed there in the month of February for the 23rd. So be sure to visit the electron for that and a lot of other really interesting talks and events around town. But I, I wanted to just point out that it wasn't until this moment that I realized the incredible appropriateness of holding Black History Month events in the Cordingly Room at the library, given it's Alma's building. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's it's uh, such a great story. But there are so many great stories. And uh, <clears throat> just, just to glide outside Great Falls to uh, other parts of, of j- j- let's just say, Cascade County, uh, uh, one of the... F- amazing stories that no one was uh, talking about and I think very few appreciated was um, that community of Fort Shaw and that military post where there are still three buildings out at the complex that's now an elementary school at Fort Shaw. Three of the buildings are built of adobe brick and they date back to 1867 when the frontier military was stationed there and um, and that post, Fort Shaw, was named after Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. Colonel Robert Gould Shaw commanded the first black resident, uh, regiment raised in the North during the Civil War. And, of course, the movie Glory made their story known to so many. And it's an incredible movie if you've never seen it. See the movie Glory, and you'll understand why Colonel Shaw and its 54th Massachusetts are so important to our history. And so here's 30 miles west of Great Falls, this Fort Shaw, named for Robert Gould Shaw. But making that even a, a more telling story for Montanans and for our understanding of history is that I've found three of the men that served with Colonel Shaw and lived through that horrendous assault that devastated the regiment. Uh, Half of the regiment was casualties at uh, Camp Wagner on the approaches to Charleston, South Carolina during the Civil War. Uh, Three of those soldiers moved to Great Falls, or moved to Montana after the Civil War. One of them came to the Little Belt Mountains and mined fairly successfully for silver up around uh, Monarch and Nyhart. Uh, Joe Meek, Sergeant Joe Meek, had been uh, with the 54th Massachusetts and had lived through that assault. Uh, Another another one was uh, Sergeant uh, Alex uh, Branson, who arrived in what became, actually came a little bit before the town of, of uh, Lewistown uh, was formed in the early 80s. And uh, he became a, a 
pillar in the Lewistown community, honored as a member of the Grand Army of the Republic, and he'd be a flag bearer at their parades and so on. Well, Alex Branson, Sergeant Branson, I found documentation, was the very first black to enlist in the 54th Massachusetts. Incredible. And and so, you know, there are stories like that. And when I did one of my first books, which was Montana Territory and the Civil War, it was stories like that that I had found that I could embed along with the stories of so many uh, white soldiers and some of the women that had had active roles participating in the Civil War and then came to Montana Territory because, of course, the the war wasn't fought in Montana, although if she went to Virginia City in 1863, they were battling over the name of Virginia City, whether it should be Verena for the for the wife of the Confederate President Jefferson Davis. And, you know, so there were little battles among the miners over the war, but basically uh, the war was far to the east. But it had a huge impact on Montana. I understand that uh, that uh, ex-soldiers of both sides came here to settle after the war. So many, so many Confederates and their southern families, especially from the border states, came to Montana. It was I call it their exile, exile of choice on the Upper Missouri because it was uh, remote. It was away from. Uh, uh, the fighting, and many of them came if they'd been wounded and didn't want to go back into action, or some deserted. And many of their families, after uh, their plantations had been uh, had the slaves freed, and, and they could no longer keep going in in uh, Kentucky or Tennessee or those border states, they headed west, and many of them arrived in places like what became Deer Lodge and Bozeman and so on. So Confederates came in large numbers, both families. And, and of course, everyone in that era had had an impact, had been impacted by the war. They either were in it or their relatives had been, or they had, uh, I mean, even people like uh, uh, Brother Van, the famed uh, Methodist missionary, who was a boy on a ranch adjoining Gettysburg Battlefield, and during the battle he was on the battlefield for the three days of the war, taking water to the wounded and helping any way he would. And, you know, that happened at the time. But he came to Montana Territory on a steamboat later and and became an active circuit-riding missionary our Methodist minister started many, many churches and so on. But for the rest of his life, the favorite story Brother Van would tell was my boyhood on the Battle of Gettysburg. And, you know, if that doesn't tell you what an impact that had on every man, woman, and child that came to Montana Territory in that post-Civil War environment. So it's it's almost fair to say that as you uh, as you go through February in Black History Month, it's uh, it's reasonable to say that there's a, a connection to be made through the Civil War and the combatants and what happened to them after the war between Black History Month and 
Montana History Month or Montana history in general and Great Falls history specifically. Black history is Montana history. Exactly. And, uh, and, and, and the fun I've had is finding those really compelling stories like the 54th Massachusetts soldiers and Colonel Shaw and so on. And then in my talks to people, I'm able to share those stories so they understand it may not have been a dominant part of the Montana population that blacks uh, had, but but they were here from uh, York with Lewis and Clark forward participating in the fur trade or in the Civil War or in subsequent wars. And uh, many of, uh, five of my books really have been involved uh, Montanans in wars. Uh, the first three really were uh, my trilogy on Montanans and the Civil War. Uh, and I did that because <laughs> I started those because in, uh, 19, in ni 1994, when uh, the 150th anniversary, 1991 actually, but through the 1990s, uh, as um, the 150th anniversary of the Civil War rolled around. Um, after the newspapers, like the Missoulian and the Tribune, which was, they were both active news newspapers with real reporters in those days, um, they, they'd have a great article that tied some local events or local people in with that most compelling war in our history. And yet, then, like they ticked off the box, the, the Civil War for the next four or five years of the commemoration of the entirety of the Civil War uh, went away. The Montana Historical Society didn't get a display up until uh, four years after the war commemoration had begun. And because of that, I, I saw the need for uh, highlighting just the things I've been talking about, and that is the the many ways that Montana's men, women, and even children, like Brother Van as a 16-year-old, had participated in that horrendous war. And then, of course, uh, when the centennial in uh, 2017, and when the centennial came along for uh, World War One, I, uh, I saw the same need. Uh, nobody was doing very much. Uh, although there was more because Montana by then had a very active participation in it, but uh, I did a pair of books that uh, presented uh, the many ways that Montanans, both on the home front and as fighting combatants, uh, participated in, in uh, World War I. And those titles were? The, the titles were... Uh, uh, Not to I, put you on the spot or anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dredge up from your voluminous publishing history. But uh, if if our listeners are intrigued by uh, by those tales and want to read more, we uh, encourage them. They're all at the library, I assume. All of your books can be checked out of the Great Falls Public Library or purchased at uh, local bookstores. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the two uh, World War I books were uh, uh, World War I Montana and... Um, Montana in the Great War because uh, World War One was known as the Great War until World War Two happened and 
so anyway, those were the titles for those two books. I believe it was also known at one point as the War to End All Wars, which— uh, That was, that was uh, President Wilson's uh, attempt to uh, have an international theme to it, uh, which was a bit ironic since uh, Wilson personally was the most racist president of the United States since Buchanan before the Civil War. And, uh, but anyway, that's, that's a different subject. Back to what you can do for Black History Month. Uh, I, I mentioned uh, briefly the uh, Black Heritage Evenings, that uh, w- w- the 14th annual being held on the 8th of February. And the idea we had in putting that together was uh, in one evening to have a combination of uh, uh, song, dance, uh, short talks and uh, sampling a soul food to with with some good uh, music in the background uh, at different times for instance uh, <clears throat> it could be charlie pride playing in the background as the audience arrives or, or as it was last year or as this year it's uh, going to be music actually uh, recorded at the Ozark Club about 1950. And uh, with that, uh, we have a short history lesson each year. Uh, we have uh, the Alexander Temple Little Saints, who frankly over the 14 years uh, are in a couple of generation of Little Saints. So the Little Saints uh, grew up and they've been replaced by younger uh, dancers now. And they do hip-hop dance. Uh, but there'll be some big saints on display as well as little saints. And there's there's uh, a whole display of uh, Black History poster boards that are people can uh, uh, look through and catch up and t- see what some of the stories are. That sounds like a just a, a fascinating and enjoyable evening. I'll make every effort to be there. And I wanted to also ask, uh, we're... We're also uh, approaching uh, an overdue update to the city's growth policy. And do you see uh, do you see the interracial nature of our past informing the the discussion that's coming up over the next twelve to eighteen months around wh- whither whither Great Falls and what kind of city we want to be going forward? Well, I, you know, I just in the past uh, week or two read the most recent uh, annual tourism report. And I was uh, somewhere between shocked and appalled to find um, there was no mention of historic preservation or or the importance of uh, of uh, local history in in tourism. And of course, <clears throat> the the tone of this uh, growth or this uh, tourism policy was, frankly, to be the midway point between Glacier and Yellowstone. And of course, that was. Uh, tried with some success in the 1920s when they had the the YGB line, uh, which actually was the road up through Nyhart and Monarch uh, on from the south from uh, Yellowstone Park to get to Glacier Park. And I mean, it was exciting at that time. It's not so exciting now when most of the tourists arriving for either Yellowstone or Glacier are arriving either at Bozeman Airport or Kalispell Airport uh, not too many come into Great Falls to go up to Glacier anymore. But what what's being left out is the uh, fact that 
Great Falls and Fort Benton combined on this upper Missouri region have a tremendous history and uh, tourist story to tell because uh, whether you're you're talking about the four national landmarks that are local here, including the First People's Buffalo Jump, the Charlie Russell Cabin and Studio, and that huge Charlie Russell n- nationally and even internationally important art story, uh, the uh, Lewis and Clark Portage story, and, of course, the Fort Benton National Historic Landmark that for Montana, the birthplace of Montana and the head of navigation on the Missouri River and all the things that, that tie Fort Benton with Great Falls. Those falls stopped the navigation at Fort Benton and Fort Benton grew as that river port because of that. And, you know, and here all of that gets left out of the tourism plan and, and, and so on. I think, though, as far as a growth policy, uh, I'm hoping that uh, historic preservation will play an active role because, again, uh, uh, part of the growth of any community, if if they are on the ball, is to uh, first have nationally important historic sites and historic structures, and that means things like national historic landmarks, uh, national places or places on the National Register and making those um, as, you know, whether it's uh, uh, the Fort Shaw National His- Historic District or Fort Benton National Historic Landmark or things in Great Falls, it's regional and people can spend <clears throat> multiple days in the area uh, visiting museums. I mean, Fort Benton alone has uh, a museum complex for a town of 1600 that's simply amazing, but it's regional tourism that we should be fostering and working on and making a key part of Great Falls's growth for the future, as well as uh, the very successful in the past decade or decade and a half uh, buildup of downtown Great Falls. Uh, the downtown of any community can can be a a huge draw for growth and uh, tourism, and and uh, Great Falls finally has begun to take off because of some good, darn good leadership from the Business Improvement District and our uh, our city uh, planning department and and so on. So, uh, if if the emphasis can be uh, placed on on the real dynamics for growth, and that's value-added agriculture, and that's coming along both in Fort Benton and Great Falls, which is exciting for the regional economy, but also for tourism and for just the enjoyment of the of the community itself. Uh, things like the 10th Street Bridge being integrated into what is the greatest river trail in the country, that River's Edge Trail that we have, and uh, things like the First People's Buffalo Jump and the fairly recent last few years, national recognition of the Little Shelf for, uh, of Chippewa of Montana, uh, with coupled with the large presence in Great Falls of, of uh, Blackfeet and other Native Americans, um, 
so uh, there, there's a huge story to tell about the Native Americans. I mean, we live in Blackfoot country, frankly. Uh, uh, this whole region was uh, uh, once part of the Blackfoot Confederacy, and it still has that great history, and uh, we should all learn to appreciate it. I totally agree. In fact, one of the most enjoyable pastimes I found uh, uh, in the five years that I've been a Great Falls resident has been uh, starting from the library, heading north and a little bit east, and reading all of those amazing plaques that have been put up in front of historically uh, preserved uh, houses and buildings and learning you know, a lot about the past and the history of the Anaconda Mining Company and uh, how, you know, how we got to sort of be where we are and become known as the treasure state and uh, the important role Great Falls played in that. You know, the the part of Great Falls and, and uh, my forthcoming book, uh, it'll be out in 2025, one of the hidden stories is going to be the industrial uh, Boston and Montana and Anaconda Copper Company era in Great Falls because, frankly, if you arrive in Great Falls today, I don't think there's a single interpretive sign. Uh, there's one building, thank goodness, and that's the Boston and Montana barn, that big white barn that's physically endangered over on Smelter Hill. Otherwise, um, there is no industrial history visible uh, where it was once part of the triad that, uh, you know, Butte always claims everything for copper. Well, Butte was where the copper was mined. Anaconda was where it was smelted, and Great Falls was where it was refined. And we should be working on a, 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 a national something, uh, probably a national historic landmark, that ties those three together to tell the complete copper story. Because the copper wire that wired the world, or the copper that went into all the ammunition, in World War One and Two, didn't come from Butte. The mining in Butte, the smelting in Anaconda, and the refinering, including the wire mills that that wire rolled out of, was right here in Great Falls. But you'd never know it today. So uh, there are things like that that need to have a whole lot of emphasis. We're trying right now the uh, Historic Preservation Commission is trying very hard now to save the Boston and Montana barn as a symbol of that industrial era. Uh, gleam in the eye, we, we don't know, but uh, it, it, for instance, if we're successful in saving it, it would make a tremendous uh, museum that could highlight the uh, industrial period in Great Falls when, as I say, the copper that rolled off those mills wired the world. It's an incredible story. And yet we don't tell it. We don't tell it well. And so that's a hidden story that's going to be in my book coming out, for instance. And we really have to wait till 2025 to read that book? Yeah. Well, I guess that uh, that time can't pass quickly enough. Uh, what else do you hope to write after these two books are out in 25? Oh, I gosh. assume you have more plans, right? I've got so many uh, projects, uh, so many projects in so little time. <laughs> Give us a teaser of one. You know, books are one thing. Uh, I determined when I got moved back here and, and as I mentioned, uh, took a look at neglected history, uh, the, the number one thing I wanted to do was uh, not to write books at that point, but to get 
the public involved through articles in the newspapers, and and it was a good time to do it because the River Press, second oldest weekly in Fort in uh, in Montana, that's published and still going strong in Fort Benton. And then in those days, the Great Falls Tribune were looking for history, and so I had countless articles in both of them over the years uh, sharing the history that, I mean, a good example is the Ozark story. Uh, I shared it with uh, reporters like Karen Ogden, uh, Karen Ivanova, I think she was known as in the Tribune days. Uh, But Karen uh, put a couple of stories together before we had the first nights at the Ozark, which is something we should talk about. But uh, and and those stories in the Tribune uh, triggered more response from around the United States, from Alaska to Washington, D.C., they told me, than any other story the Tribune had ever published, which is absolutely incredible. People remembered that Ozark Club and the importance of it. And, and the fun part of history is not only to write the stories in the newspapers or to publish books about it, but to see things happen or change or come about because of it. And there's no greater example in my experience than the the nights at the Ozark that we did from 2005 to 2007 at the History Museum in Great Falls. And that was such an amazing uh, sequence of events where uh, Neil Habertson with his very fine Fireside Bookstore down on Central Avenue uh, told told Phil Auberg, Montana's musical treasure, who was then living in Chester, uh, told Phil and told me uh, about this elderly guy that used to stop by the bookstore and talk about the Ozark Club and, and uh, said, you know, Phil and Ken, you need to interview him. So Phil and I arranged and there, sitting in fireside books at the big table Neil had, uh, Jack Mahood started relating his story. He he was uh, just back. He was a farmer from Big Sandy. He was just back from World War II. And on the weekend, he'd jump on the Spruce Goose, they'd call it, that was the train from Big Sandy to great, the Great Northern Train into Great Falls, bring his alto sax, and he'd... Uh, go to all the nightclubs around. And of course, he was white, so he could get into the uh, clubs over in Black Eagle and in downtown Great Falls. But he also, because he was such a good musician, was invited to sit in on Sunday afternoons at the Ozark Club with Bob Maybane and the house band there and other white musicians in Great Falls who uh, loved the jazz, but it was segregated. And so they'd be playing along, and one one time, Jack, we believe it was in 1950, took along a one-time recording device, it was called a recordit, and set it up, and he played, uh, or he played it or had it active as the band was jamming there on Sunday afternoon, uh, recorded a dozen or more music, uh, songs, everything from... Uh, from uh, Sweet Georgia Brown to more 
but the great jazz sound of jam sessions at the Ozark Club. Well, we interviewed Jack, and about midway through the interview, uh, Jack mentioned, gosh, maybe I ought to go to the closet and dig out those old discs. And as Phil Auberg says, his jaw just dropped. <laughs> and we quickly arranged two weeks later, Jack had dug out those old discs, which were the ones that had been recorded at the Ozark Club. And we had a 78-type player at uh, Fireside. And there we were sitting, listening to 1950s Ozark Club music. With that and and the research that I'd done into the in, into the Ozark Club and the black community on the Lower South Side, we got together with uh, Chris Morris, the then director of the History Museum, and determined to put a night at the Ozark, recreate a night like it would have been at the Ozark Club in the 1940s and 50s. And, of course, the first problem we encountered was the, the History Museum just had one photo of the Ozark Club, and that was a photo the night of the fire, of the fire at the club that Ray Osmond had taken. There were no photos of Leo Lamar. There were no photos of the club. So we got in touch with the three daughters of Leo Lamar that had moved after his death from Great Falls to Los Angeles and were living in Los Angeles. They were stunned to hear that Great Falls, Montana, wanted to do something about their father and the Ozark Club. They were thrilled. In fact, uh, one was not in good health, but two were. And, and Bunny and Sugar Lamar came to the first night at the Ozark. And in the meantime, they'd shared about 100 photos, everything from uh, Goose Tatum signed Harlem Globetrotters spending a night at the Ozark Club to uh, Joe Lewis sitting in the uh, gambling room at the Ozark Club with Leo and his wife and, you know, every... And don't of, forget Miss Wiggles. And, and <laughs> yeah, and uh, so that was the beginning of those uh, nights at the Ozark Club. When, uh, when Chris Morris, uh, well, first... With, within two weeks and almost no advertising, uh, not only did the 400 tickets sell, that was a capacity, absolute capacity of the History Museum's place, uh, but about three or 400 more had signed up and were on a waiting list. If so I'm not that, mistaken, Ken, the, did, uh, didn't Montana Public Television pick that up and, and put on a piece that you can watch even to this day about absolutely. that event? Absolutely. Uh, Backroads of Montana, uh, John John Twiggs came over uh, with the team, and they and they recorded during uh, not that first night, but one of the nights. And uh, actually, they were there the first night. I think they came back and recorded a much longer piece later. But the part on uh, Backroads of Montana's, you know, the usual fifteen-minute or so segment, and it's fantastic because it has Jack Mahood uh, in his wheelchair, and he passed away later. It has John Huber, who as a 15-year-old uh, uh, Central High School jazz student had performed with, he'd been invited to come to, to the uh, jam sessions 
because he was such a good trumpeter and and uh, uh, he has since passed away and so on. So anyway, those uh, that first night at the Ozark with Bunny and and uh, Sugar both there in the audience, uh, Chris Morris asked that huge crowd how many had been at the original Ozark Club. At least a quarter of the hands went up, and and this is uh, like uh, sixty years, fifty some years after. So you know, that's a long time, and. Uh, I remember, anyway, I, I remember a second Saturday uh, very recently when the same question went up and at least three or four hands uh, went up when asked, have you ever actually been, yeah. uh, had you actually ever attended the Ozark Club? So those were wildly popular and uh, we uh, Phil Auberg was key in lining up the musicians. Uh, that first one he had a, a Montana jazz, white jazz band because it was such short notice, but by by fall he had arranged for uh, <clears throat> friends who were uh, a nationally prominent uh, black jazz band from the Bay Area came in September. We had two more nights of which at year? the Ozark. And of, of, which, course, of which year, Ken? It's, it's 2007. So the June first night, June 7th, and then the two in September, the 400 on the waiting list were able to come. We still had people on the waiting list for the two nights in September. It was so popular. And it really made a splash. It, but, you know, to get back to the point, the point is that when you can uh, study history or research history and find stories that have a powerful impact like that, or like having Alma's portrait on the side of the Great Falls Public Library, boy, you can't be more satisfied with with what you're doing as a historian. I got to say, Ken, uh, now that we've filled up everyone's viewing list, reading list, and event list for the month of February, I think it's time for us to uh, wrap up here. And uh, I need your assurance that you'll come back for part two of this discussion, because I, <laughs> I don't think you're done talking to me on Voices and Views. We've got a lot to talk about. <laughs> Thank you very much, Ken Robison. It's been a real pleasure talking to you this hour. And uh, for the rest of the schedule, please visit the kgpr.org station schedule page on our website. And please look forward to more voices and views coming up in the coming months as we, as we es essentially look for Great Falls citizens whose voices and views inform what makes Great Falls unique. Can or, any, any or, Shoto, or Shoto County, I mean, uh, Cascade County. Or Cascade County, County absolutely. Yeah. Any, any final closing words for us, Ken? Well, it's Black History Month. Uh, in, enjoy the events that come up. Uh, Malmstrom's going to have at least one event that I know of uh, on, the, on the 23rd also. It's a couple hours before mine, so you can... Uh, make arrangements to get to Malmstrom to see that, and then uh, come down to the Great Falls Public Library at 5 o'clock and uh, catch my talk. And uh, in the meantime, schools are doing a lot more and having uh, honoring events and uh, nationally things like National Public Radio do and television do a lot. Uh, and, uh, and we'll try to get as many of the school events that you can attend on the Electron. So please keep, keep the uh, Electron page bookmarked at kgpr.org slash E-L-E-C-T-R-O-N. And with that, we will sign off for my very first Voices and Views interview. And it couldn't have been more delightful. Thank you, Ken Robison. You bet. Thanks, listener.